you're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Uh, well, about 10 years ago, we were in a season of life, uh, me and Kelly, where I was on the road touring all the time. Um, at this time, I, I was probably on the road something like 260 days a year. We were just gone. And Kelly uh, started to travel with me less and less. She was staying home more and more. And so I got to thinking, this girl needs a companion, some type of Something to snuggle up with at night. I don't know. That's not me, right? Like a little Bichon or some little puffball dog that would like get her down the road. Something, you know, something. I'm gone a lot. Let me give her something. So I got to thinking about it. I was talking to some buddies. I remember talking to a friend of mine named Paul and he just told me straight out. He said, hey, you know what the best dog in the world is? He was a New Yorker. You know what the best dog in the world is? I was like, what? No. He's like, you go get yourself a German shepherd. I was, yeah, I know, a little different than a Bichon. I was like, uh, what? He's like, best dog in the world. Loyal, you bet. Great with kids, they're amazing. The geniuses, these dogs, you're going to love them. And I, 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 trust it, but I, trust that, I trust that accent, and so I went. I did it. I was like, uh, something about it. So I, so I went to this bougie kennel down in Katy, Texas, and I got myself a German Shepherd, a little puppy. Uh, and everything was great until about three seconds after I swiped that credit card. And then things just started to get weird. Like, uh, like I was talking to the guy who was kind of checking me out and did the swipe thing, and, and, and then he's kind of giving me all the things I need to get out the door. And it, it was weird. He, it, uh, he was handing me stuff. Here's the collar. Here's the leash. Here's uh, the dog's paperwork. He, uh, here's the uh, recipe for your dog's food. And I said, what? I don't know. Uh, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm a kibbles and or bits kind of guy. That's what dogs say. He's like, oh no, sir. This is a performance dog. It needs performance fuel. You're going to want to come with me. I'm not kidding. He takes me over to a freezer. He opens the freezer and he pulls out an eight-pound frozen bag of chicken. He says, you're going to want to boil this on the stove two to three times a week. Adding to this three cut-up carrots, eight eggs, this shark bone powder. I'm not making this up. It helps with the gums. You're going to put that in there. Omega-3 oil. You do this two to three times. You serve it hot over their hard food on the floor. And then whatever you have left over, you throw in your fridge for next time. Shark bone powder. Do you know that's a thing? That's a thing. Okay, uh, I gra- I'm holding a huge bag of meat as I'm walking out. I don't know what's happening. And then he stops and, and, and he goes, hey, one more thing. You're going to want to let the dog lick your face. <laughs> I know. I said, what, why? That's such a weird thing. Why? He's like, German shepherds, they bond with their masters by licking their face. So you're going to want to let the dog lick your face. In fact, in the contract you just signed to buy the dog, it says that if we find out you don't let the dog lick your face, we can take the dog back. So for the next two years, I'm like cooking filet mignon for my dog on the stove while me and Keller are eating hot dogs, just letting it lick all over me like I'm a crazy boy. That should should have been it for me, right? I should have punched out, but that wasn't the deal breaker. The deal breaker for me was this, 
they wouldn't let us spay her because she was a show shepherd. So every month, once a month, I'm chasing a gigantic German shepherd around my living room with an adult doggy diaper, wrapping this thing, pulling the tail out of a little hole in the back. It was the, these were dark times. This was a hard moment for me. And it was about that point that I kind of looked over at Kelly and was like, I think I made a mistake. And she agreed. And a few months after that, we sold the dog on Craigslist to a guy named Bill. It was the best day of my life. Just watching it go, I felt no tie. It was amazing. The idea of a dog seemed so great at the time. But I didn't take the time to assess all of the, all that this decision was demanding of me. I, I didn't pause and reflect on that. I didn't know that I was going to be a dog chef. I just thought, I'm buying a puppy. But I wasn't buying a puppy. You know what I was buying? Problems. I was buying problems, and I didn't realize it at the time. And I learned a lesson. You find out what it's costing you before you swipe the card. That's a great lesson for life. And some of you, you know exactly what I mean. It, it might not be a a puppy for you, but this moment happens to all of us in different ways in life. A, a business venture, right, that you get involved with, you think it's going to be X, and it is Y, and it turns south, or it goes really rough for you, or, or school choices and degrees and going to college. You know, some of you guys are sitting here, and you like majored in checkers, and now you have like a $50,000 student loan. It's like, what have I done, right? Or some of you, it's, it's relationships. You've gotten involved, deeply entwined in some relationships that you thought were going to be one thing, and they've turned south, and it's been really hard. It's not what you signed up for. And for some of us in this room, that's been our experience with Christianity, right? That this thing that we call Christianity that you've entered into, you, you thought you were getting a puppy, but, but what you actually have signed up for is just a world of problems, it feels like, right? Because all of a sudden, your parents don't like how churchy you are anymore, right? You're always, you're always going to church, right? It's costing you something relationally. Or, or you, you begin to find out that, that what this book says about me and money is, is, is hard. It's making claims about the things that I'm earning, and I have to make decisions that correspond to this, and, and that, that's costing me something. It's, it's costly. Or, or you've got something that you, in your life that you just love to death, and you're holding on tight to it, but God doesn't see that as love. He calls that an addiction. And you're recognizing the more you're walking with him that I have to let my arms go from around this thing. And I don't want to. That's hard. I love that thing. And what you thought you signed up for is not actually what you got. And you're looking around, some of us, and you're just going, is this, is this the thing that I signed up for? Is this, is this what I'm in? That's a hard place to be. If that's you, though, you're right 
to be asking those kind of questions. The Bible actually encourages it. I love the Bible because it, it doesn't tell us to shy away from these things. It tells us to move forward. And today, as we're working through our, our parable series, we're coming to a parable today that's inviting us into this uncomfortable terrain of assessing and considering what it means to follow Jesus. That's what we're doing today. So we're going to look at three things in our passage. If, if you're taking notes, you can write these down. We're, we are uh, going to look at the cost of following Jesus, the invitation to calculate that cost, and then finally the, the capital we need to pay that cost, or cost, calculation, capital, if you want to remember it that way. So let's start, let's, let's begin by looking at the cost. If you got your Bible, get it out. We're going to be in Luke 14. And uh, just so you know, uh, we are actually in the passage right before the passages that Rodney just preached through over the past three weeks. So it's this, and then it's the, the parables that Rodney just gave us. So Jesus is on a 10-chapter journey to Jerusalem in the book of Luke. That's what this section of Luke is all about. And in Luke 14, he's somewhere on that journey to Jerusalem, and Luke tells us this about the setting. He says, now great crowds accompanied him. And uh, it's interesting, a literal translation of great crowds would actually be many crowds. So it is a, it's like a festival of crowds around Jesus. Lots and lots of different people following him. And th I mean, th can you imagine you just turn around and it's just an arena of humans and they're all there for you. They're there because they want to hear what you have to say, what you have to contribute. This is an influencer's dream, right? Like, can you imagine just like, I, I, ha I have the ear of everyone in the room. At all times, this is Jesus, wherever he goes. And he turns around, there's great crowds, many crowds around him. I mean, what do you say in that moment? If you're the, if you're the Messiah, you're the one that, that these people have been waiting for for millennia. You're that guy. What are you saying in that moment? Man, you're saying, you're saying something good, something to inspire. I'm, for me, I'm, I'm grabbing like that Bill Pullman speech from Independence Day. I'm, I'm going brave heart, free, free, we're going we're gonna to do this thing, right? Like, that's what I'm turning around and I'm saying to like these thousands of people. What does Jesus do? Jesus has the ear of just myriads of human beings. What does he turn around and say? What does he do? What we get with Jesus is probably the most awkward public speech in human history. It is amazing to me. Great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me, they're like, yeah, that's me, and doesn't hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. <laughs> you have never met a guy who could clear a room faster than Jesus Christ. It is amazing. It is his gift. He would be the worst presidential candidate ever 
Can you imagine? You've got, you've got this massive audience and your stump speech is hate your mom? That's what you lead with? That's, can we just, I, I don't want to just blow past, I want us to savor how crazy this is. It is a crazy thing he just did. And I love it. Not because I'm a sadist. I love it because I can trust a guy like this. Do you know what I mean? Like, no one likes to be sold stuff, right? That is not a fun feeling. If you're a car salesman in the room, that's a hard job. It's tough. To, to sell people on something. But you know the car salesman you should never trust? It's the one who won't let you look under the hood. That guy, I'm not trusting anything I get from that guy. Jesus, first conversation, pop the hood. That's what he's doing. He's saying, I want you to take a look at this thing before you get in. And I'm going to show you everything that's jacked up here. You need to know it out the gate. And when I see a guy talk like that, it tells me I can trust you. I'm not being hoodwinked. There's no veil over my face. He's forthright. This is actually an honorable thing. It hits us sideways in our, in our modern culture. But I just want you to, to know that's a man you can trust. What are we signing up for? What is he calling us to? What, what is the cost? Well, he gives us three in this next little section. If you want an easy way to remember it, it's this. People, plans, and possessions. All our people, all our plans, and all our possessions. A nice, easy little list. And let's look at the first one. Let's look at people. Verse 26. I'll read it again. If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I wonder what the crowds did, right? You couldn't come up with any stronger language to convey your point than this. And the most important question we have to answer when we read this is this, what on earth is he talking about? What does he mean? Right? I read this to my daughter last week, and she goes, oh, well, I guess I'm not a Christian because I like mom and dad. Right? And I was like, why'd you say like? This is a, what is that? Right? But what is he, what is it? It hits us sideways. What does he mean? Does he mean I am to hate, actually hate, my wife, Kelly, does he mean that you're to hate your kids? He said that. Is that what he means? Does he mean I'm to hate my brother and sister? This would be an interesting Thanksgiving, wouldn't it? The answer is, it depends on what you mean by hate. In Western culture, the idea of love and hate is really tethered to feelings. Those are feeling words for us, right? When I say I love something or I hate something, I'm talking about the emotions that thing brings up in me. For instance, I hate sweet tea. I love Coke Zero because I'm a Christian, right? This is how we talk about 
love and hate. They're feeling words for us, but not so in Jewish culture. In Jewish culture, the ideas of love and hate were much less tethered to feelings and much more tethered to loyalties. Okay, so the question wasn't so much, how do I feel about you? The question was, was rather, where do my highest loyalties lie? Or to what or to whom am I committed? Or who do I choose? Do, do you remember um, Romans 9, that really tough passage of scripture where Paul is talking about election and he's quoting Malachi to, to make a point about God choosing some and not choosing others. And, and he quotes that line where it says, uh, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It's that same idea coming through. Love and hate there is about choosing in, in this. To hate is to not choose, to not prefer, to not select. And in that sense, Jesus does mean hate here. And look, of course, of course, we know we should love people. This would be contradicting all of Jesus's other teachings to, to say that he's saying something other than love, right? We, we want, love one another, Right? This is, this, this is out of the mouth of Jesus. So he's, he's not contradicting himself. He's saying this. A follower of Jesus is someone who prefers Jesus over all other relationships, even the closest ones. Do you feel me on that? Uh, let me say it again. A follower of Jesus is someone who prefers Jesus over all other relationships, even the closest ones. Or to say it a different way, the only person who's allowed to be your everything is Christ. And that's heavy because we love people so deeply. Let me clarify something um, because I, I don't want to wrongly portray the attitude or the spirit of what Jesus is saying here. He's not being mean. And, and gosh, it's so hard to, to not hear it that way, right? It's just a tough passage. But he's not being mean. You know what he's doing? He's protecting you. And he's protecting the people you love. No human being can bear the weight of being someone else's Jesus. You can't bear that weight in someone's life. And no one can bear that weight in your life. They will fail you if they are your Jesus. No one can live up to that. And ultimately what will happen, and he knows this, is they will pull you away or you them away from God because your happiness will be tied to them in a way that it shouldn't. So this is not the meanness of Jesus coming out in this weird passage. This is the kindness of Jesus. He's sparing your heart from heartbreak. I remember I saw a beautiful example of clarity on this just last week. We were uh, hanging out doing a Bible study with uh, some of our friends and talking about these very things. And, and I remember the, the wife of, of the guy sitting there, she kind of raised her hand and, and, and just went, I'm realizing as we're talking about this that I have made him my everything. He, 
his well-being and my joy rises and falls equally. I'm, I'm not okay unless he's okay. I'm tethered to him in some unhealthy ways, even though he's my husband. I'm, I'm realizing he is functionally my Jesus. And we just had a sweet time where she got to repent of that and own that. And it was awesome. That's not inappropriate. That's not not loving him well. That's loving him very well. And can I say this? For, for some of you in the room, you might be hearing this, and, and that might be what the Lord's calling you to do today. Maybe one of the applications for you today is to repent of the same thing, not to love that person in your life less, but to love them rightly. That's, that's what he's saying here in a way that keeps Jesus at the center at the top and appropriately assesses all other relationships. So maybe that's, that's what you need to be doing today. Or maybe that's not you today. Maybe that's not your situation. Maybe for you, maybe for you, you're in a dating rate relationship today with someone who doesn't treasure the God you treasure. And, and you might even be heading down uh, on your way to the aisle. Right? And you are linking arms with someone who doesn't have the most crucial, most important thing in common with you. And that's a tough place to be in because there's genuine love for this person and yet the Bible is very clear. The, the people of God being yoked together with people who don't know or love God, it will only spell ruin for both parties. And if there may be on the table for you today a decision to be made about whether or not you should be unequally yoked, but this would be an appropriate application for this text. We have to have Jesus as our everything. He is the center, he is the top in a way that we can rightly love others. Or maybe it's totally different for you. Maybe it's not about relationships in that way, but maybe you've been feeling, uh, maybe you're a young person in here, and you've been feeling a, a, a tug from God uh, to lean in to, um, to maybe a, a vocation that would serve Jesus. Maybe he's calling you to, to the mission field. Maybe he's calling you to some Christian labor or employment or a career path but you're resistant to it. You're, you're scared because of maybe what your parents might think of that. I read an interesting research study this week that was done on Christian college graduates, and the study showed that the number one reason that Christian college graduates gave as to why they were reticent to go into the ministry or go to the mission field, the number one reason, you know what it was? The number one reason for them not to pursue full-time uh, career in ministry was objections from their Christian parents who thought they wouldn't be making enough money if they did that. Graduates, you need to love your parents and you need to honor them, but the loudest voice in your life should be Christ's. Jesus must have priority over all our people. But it's not just our people. He, he goes on from that. Jesus must have priority, we see, over all our plans. He goes on, look at verse 27 with me. He says this. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now this, this is a shocking sentence. 
I don't know if it hits you like that when you hear it, but it's shocking. But this whole idea of bearing one's own cross. Jesus is using crucifixion as a metaphor for the Christian life. Hey, what's following Jesus like? It's kind of like being nailed to a cross. That's what he just said. Right? Now, we don't hear it like that. Why? We typically don't hear it like that because we have watered down that phrase. It's become a phrase in our culture in such a way that we apply it to things that it ought not apply to. I was at Thanksgiving this uh, week with my in-laws, just, just bearing my cross, you know? It's like, maybe hanging out with your mother-in-law feels like being nailed to a cross. But probably not right? That's probably an overstatement. That's not what Jesus had in mind. In the Roman world, the cross was a symbol of torture and humiliation. That's what's being conveyed when you hear cross. Crosses were for criminals and they were for slaves. That's who they were for. And it was not just a way to kill someone. You could have done that a lot easier than a cross. Crosses take time. Crosses strip you. Crosses put you out in public. It's not just to kill you. It's to humiliate you, shame you, embarrass you, chastise you, chide you, mock you. That's what the cross is. When Jesus said this, it was, a, it was like a, it's a shorthand way to tell that big group of people right in front of them, following me means signing up for a lifetime of shame before the world and death to what you want. This is point two in Jesus' sermon. <laughs> oh, some of you are like, why didn't he tell me this before I signed up for this thing, right? Did you know that signing up to be a Christian means dying to your vision for your life. It doesn't mean you might not get the vision for your life, but it does mean you are opening up your hands around all the plans that you have made for you. And you pick up your cross and you follow him. That's, that's what submitting to Jesus in discipleship is. I know for me, this played out in a real tangible way about four and a half years ago when I said yes to becoming a, a pastor and coming on staff at Stonegate. I, uh, I was doing the, the recording artist life. I was out on the road touring. We were making records. It was amazing. And then I felt God start to poke at me. The more I studied scripture, the more I, I remember I was sitting with First uh, Timothy in a Bible study with some guys, and I just started to realize the massive, massive importance God puts on the local church when he thinks about advancing his kingdom. And I just couldn't shake this thought that if I wanted to be about the most important, urgent work in the world, I should probably be about local church work. But that was kicking against my whole vision for everything I wanted to do with my life. I remember Ke Kelly would tell you this. My, I never wanted to be a pastor, never wanted to be a worship leader. Just get me out on the road. And now I'm here with you guys, right? What changed? What changed is God bringing before me an invitation to die to my vision, my plans, my agenda. And can I tell you? 
It was the sweetest thing I've ever got to do. I'm so happy to be here. It was the right move, but it wouldn't have happened without a crucifixion in my life. And that crucifixion was painful. These are not fun things. Death to your vision, your plan, it hurts, but it's good and it's right. And we are gonna have to die to our vision for our life all the time. It's what it means to be a Christian. For some of you in the room, singleness might be a cross that you are bearing, that God has given you. God might be calling you to walk with him for a prolonged period of singleness. And when I even say that out of my mouth, it feels a little bit like death to you. That's a hard place to be. I know many folks who, when they think about singleness, that's the last place they want to be. But God might be inviting you into it to do just like Paul said to the Corinthians, to secure undistracted devotion to the Lord. And the question on the table for you is, if my God wants this for me, do I go with my plan or his? And how you answer that will demonstrate if you're willing to pick up your cross and go after him. Discipleship is costly. Are you getting a sense of that? It costs us things. It costs us relationally. It costs us with a vision of where we want to head with our life, our plans. And finally, it's going to cost us our grip on our possessions. Look at the end of the passage in verse 33. So therefore, he says, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. All that he has Literally, all that he possesses or all of his possessions, all your stuff, all all you've acquired, all that fills your accounts, your whole 401k, your Roth, your property, your future properties, all you've earned, all you will earn, if you're in Christ, there's a big old sign over it now, and it says, not yours. Now come to Jesus, That's the cost of discipleship. Jesus is looking at us and saying, if you want to come after me, it's going to be me over everyone you love, me over everything you are, and me over everything you own. Wow. Right? Let me give you another way to think about this conversation. I'm I'm trying to think of the most helpful ways for us to get our minds and hearts around what Jesus is doing in this passage. Let me submit another way for you to think about this. Do you know what this is? This is Jesus retelling the first commandment. If you want to think about it like that, that's what this is. You remember Exodus 20? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's another way of saying what Jesus has just told us in this parable so far, in this passage. He's saying this, you will have a God in your life. You're going to have a God in your life. It will either be me or your kids. It'll either be me or your 401k. 
It'll either be me or your spouse. It'll either be me or a desire for a spouse. It'll either be me or that VP spot at your company. It'll either be me or Instagram followers. It's either going to be me or food. It'll either be me or you, but you'll have a God in your life and I will not compete to be one. I am God, he says. I don't compete. You come to me treating me as such or don't come. But that's what's on the table for you. Have you dealt with this reality? Have you wrestled with this? Is Christianity just a cool club you signed up for when you were a kid? I hope to God this passage is changing your mind on that. Because if it is, you're going to have a miserable time as a Christian. And I'm not trying to be angsty, fighty, edgy guy up here. I'm just telling you what the scripture says. You have to think about these things. It will cost you something, maybe everything, to be his. And Jesus' main point of this passage is not to tell us there is a cost. He, he has done that. There is one. That was our first point, the cost. But his main point seems to be to tell us to calculate the cost. That's where we're heading now, the calculation of this cost. And he does this starting in verse 28. He's telling us, think about this. Dwell on this. Consider this. Calculate this. He does this by giving us two parables, one of a builder, one of a king. Verse 28, the builder, which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Okay. We, this, we just got into our parable, by the way. This, this won't be a nine-hour sermon, but just know that this, we, just, we just got to it. For those of you who are interested, this is called an interrogative parable, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus is asking us a question in a story. That's what he's doing. And the question's rhetorical. Which one of you guys, he puts us in the story, which one of you goes to build a thing without first seeing if he has enough things to build the thing. Otherwise, when he starts building the thing, he's not going to have enough of the things to build the thing, and it'll just be a half thing. And if you have a half thing, you're a joke. Everybody knows your joke, and they laugh at you. So you don't do that. What do you do? You make sure you have enough things to build the thing. That's the parable. That's, that's pretty deep, isn't it? It's amazing. It's, it's really intuitive. There's actually not a, a, a ton to dig down deep into uh, in here. That's what he's saying. Every builder assesses, calculates the cost before they construct. Otherwise, there'll be a laughing stock. We don't want our life to be like 287. This, you don't, no one wants that. That's never going to get done. I can read a whole book at that light out there. 
This isn't even about the sermon anymore. I just hate that place. <laughs> Point. Calculate before you start. Calculate before you start. That's what he's saying. And he, he goes on to drive this parable home with another parable, but this time it's not about a builder. It's about a king, and the stakes are even higher. So hear this. Verse 31. Or what king? Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So now it's not a builder, it's a king. And this king is deliberating, uh, deliberating whether or not he has the resources to go to war. And it is a resource issue for him. But it's not bricks this time. It's human lives. It's people. It's his army. It's the arsenal. He's, he is debating whether or not with 10,000 guys, if he could win a war fighting 20,000 guys coming against him. So it's very similar to our last parable, except this time, it's not a reputation that's on the line. It's human beings. It's, it's lives. This, this man is having to to consider whether he has the resources to bring his people into a war with another group of people. I mean, the, the issue on the table is, can I win or will I die? You feel that's a little bit different than will they make fun of me? The stakes are high, but, but you, you can feel this, right? Can he win this? Or if he tries, will he perish? Life itself is at stake. Jesus's point, again, is clear. You need to calculate the cost. And then, for like no reason, he says a couple other things, and he's out. That's the end of his sermon. G good day. He didn't even answer his own question. He's so baller. That is so amazing. Who can do this? I can't do that. He, he just says a couple other things, and he leaves them with this, this cliffhanger in the air. This is kind of the end of Jesus's sermon to this group of people. And the question that's kind of floating out there over us is, do you have the manpower to win the war? Do, do you have the bricks to build the tower? Do you have that? Do, do you have the capital necessary to pay the cost of following me? He just, and he's out. My goodness. Who in here hears that question and goes, I do. I've got what it takes. Hate your family, sell your stuff and die. Where do I sign up? Sounds amazing. I'm in. No, I don't think that's what they thought. I don't think that's what we think. You know what I, I think goes through our minds? This is what goes through my mind. How could anyone do that? That's what I feel. Do you not feel that? If that's, if that's the stakes, if this is the cost, I mean, like, could you say bigger words than hate your mom and dad, sell your stuff, and get on a cross? Could you say anything more radical than If that's the cost, how can we do this? How? He doesn't tell us. 
He doesn't give us an answer here. If the cost is this high, how can anyone make such a sacrifice? He doesn't answer us, but there is an answer. And the answer is actually wonderfully intuitive. It doesn't take any theological gymnastics at all. You want to know what it is? The answer is, you can do it if what you get is better than what you give. You can do it then. You could do it then. You could, you could endure then. Plenty of people endure if that's the situation. If what you get is better than what you give, you will have the internal capital needed to pay. And what do you get if you follow Jesus? You get Jesus. And Jesus is better. He is the capital that you need to get the supplies you need to build that tower or to build that army so you can fight that king. The love of Jesus is better than the best thing, best person, best relationship, best retirement, best job offer, best income, best life. Do you wanna know why our mission statement at Stonegate is enjoy Jesus and make disciples? You see it on our website, you see it out on the building. Why do we say that? Is it just a cute phrase that has a good meter to it? No, we hang our lives on that. Do you know why, why our mission statement is enjoy Jesus and make disciples? Because you will not make it in this life if you don't enjoy Jesus. It's not just us finding a cute word to talk about how we interact with God. You either enjoy Jesus or you don't make it to the end. That's the reality. If you don't enjoy Jesus more than anything, then anything has the ability to take you out of the game. He's the capital we need to make it as a disciple. So the question Jesus leaves us with in the end of our passage is not really, do you have what it takes to follow me? But rather, do you enjoy me more? Do you enjoy me more than your best relationship you have? Do you enjoy me more than the new toy you're looking at for Christmas? Do you enjoy me more than the great bright plan you have for your life and all the ways that's going to come to fruition? Do you enjoy me more than those things? If you didn't get any of those things but you had me, would that be enough? Or would that be a little bit of a disappointment to you? Or a huge disappointment to you? Man, what a litmus test for our heart, yeah? Do we enjoy him more? The degree to which you enjoy him treasure him, savor him, delight in him, love him, is the degree to which your sacrifices will feel small in this life. Meaning, 
less enjoyment of Jesus, more felt sacrifice. More enjoyment of Jesus, less felt sacrifice. David Livingston knew this. Do you know that name, David Livingston? 1800s, Scottish Christian, spent his life as an explorer in Africa and a missionary. He was an ardent abolitionist when he saw the slave trade happening there. He spent his life laboring to discover and uncover the geography of Africa so he could get the gospel into that continent. Spent his life on it. And December 4th, 1857, he gives an address to the students at Cambridge University. And here's what David Livingston said to them about his many, and there were many, toils, hardships, labors in service to Jesus in Africa. Here's what he said. I'm just going to read this uh, excerpt. For my own part, I've never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Is that a sacrifice? Which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the word in such a view and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety. Sickness suffering or danger. Now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these things are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in and for us. Listen to this. I never made a sacrifice. Is that you? Is that how you talk about the many hard things that God has brought you into? Is that how you talk about the losses in your life? The things that following Jesus has cost you? Or does it feel like following Jesus to you is just one loss after another loss after another loss? Does it feel like like following him is just one cost, one burden, one weight over another weight over another weight. Can I challenge you? If that's you, if that's your experience of walking with Jesus, where it's just like, gosh, is this even worth it? Can I challenge you? Your enjoyment of Jesus is too small. And I'm, I'm not trying to be mean or poke at you. I'm saying, do you want to be free from that feeling of just like, ugh, what a grind. Grow this to this. Find ways to expand your enjoyment of him. Sit with him, linger with him, read from him, beg him in prayer to expand your enjoyment of him because that's your only hope for not seeing all of this is just cost, 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 cost. That's not the Christian life.
It's a part of it, but the Christian life is enjoying Jesus and making disciples. That's what it is. It's a pleasure. We want to be like David Livingston, being able to say at the end of an incredibly hard life, I never made a sacrifice. Oh, yes. May that be us. May that be us. May our enjoyment of him rise and watch and see if those experiences of sacrificing don't just fall to the floor. Let's pray. Lord, I recognize that there's folks in this room that don't experience either of those feelings. They don't experience enjoyment of Jesus. And they don't even experience the cost of what it means to be a follower because they're not following. And I pray for them that they'd follow. And that even in this prayer, God, your spirit would so work in them that they would cast themselves on you for the first time. The one who bore the cross to Calvary to pay for their sins if they would trust him. God, would you call people who've never even experienced a sacrifice of following you to follow you for the first time. And God, for those of us who, who are walking with you, and it's just, it's harder than we thought. It's harder than what we thought when we signed up. Lord, will you give us the capital we need? And that capital we need is you. It's your company. I couldn't do this life if I, if I didn't have a friend in you, Jesus. God, would you, would you be a deeper, more rich friend to some of us in this room? in a way that it would supplant all of the suffering, all of the sacrificing, all of the costliness that we experience in walking after you. We just want you. Give us you. Fill us with you. If you're with us, I could do anything. We could do anything. So be near to us. Be close to us, we pray. In your name.